and welcome to the Allegra podcast, the, the rather irregular uh, Allegra podcast, but that's something we're hoping to change in the future. Nevertheless, today is not about that, but rather it's about a really wonderful conversation I had the pleasure of having with Anand Pandian, the Professor and Department Chair of the Department of Anthropology at John Hopkins University. I spoke with Anand about his new book, A Possible Anthropology, Methods for Uneasy Times, which came out with Duke last year, and we had a really enjoyable conversation about many different aspects of the book, and we even had a couple of guest questions pop in from um, a couple of anthropologists in different parts of the world, but I'll leave that as a little bit of a mystery for you to look forward to as the episode moves on. I put links to pretty much everything we spoke about or tried to um, in the show notes and also on the Allegra website. So please do check those out for further reading and listening. All right, without further ado, let's listen to the conversation with Anand. So I'd like to welcome Anand to uh, this podcast uh, from Allegra. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you. I've really enjoyed uh, reading your book over the last month or so on and off, and it has a really intriguing and interesting title. Uh, I've got it here in front of me, A Possible Anthropology, Methods for Uneasy Times. And I was really interested and excited when I picked it up because I was thinking, so what is a possible anthropology? You know, what, or what's possible for anthropology? What's impossible for anthropology? Uh, or what about, you know, what are the possibilities for the discipline and all these things? And there's lots of answers and I think lots of questions in your book as well. And we're going to talk about those. But I think like to set the scene for those people who haven't had the chance yet, let's begin by you sort of laying out like, what is a possible anthropology? Or to put it another way, in like really sort of broad terms, what's your book about? Thank you so much, uh, Ian, for the question and for the chance to talk about this book. It's something that I've been thinking about for some years now. And in some ways, I would say it began with a question that was needling me, or has been needling me as long as I've been an anthropologist, as long as I've been studying anthropology, which is a question, <laughs> what is anthropology anyway? It's the kind of question people you meet will sometimes ask uh, at parties in the field. Uh, it's not a very easy question to answer. It's clearly something that many of us in the field have struggled with because there have been many, many different ways of answering that question. And to be honest, the book really began as an essay or the idea of an essay that would try to answer the question, what is anthropology? I wanted to answer that question for myself. But as I got into that mm -hmm. project, as I began to kind of think through the history of the discipline, different ways of wrestling with that question, and really as I got deeper into the method that the book pursues, which is that of an ethnographer trying to make sense of the discipline from the inside, but also from that certain kind of outside that ethnography constitutes. As I began to follow around some colleagues and acquaintances in the field and try to make sense as an ethnographer of their practices as an anthropologist, it became clearer and clearer to me that whatever I put forward in the book could not be put forward dogmatically, could not be put forward 
authoritatively or too authoritatively could not be put forward as the latest in a whole series of rather, uh, how should we put it, proud pronouncements of what the field is, but might instead be pursued as a path of inquiry, as a path of understanding, a possible way of making sense of what the field is, what it's been, what it yet may be, that I myself would find livable as a picture of anthropological practice, but that might also in some ways provide a way of wrestling with some of the serious challenges that the field has faced in recent years and that the worlds in which we work have also seen in recent years. So the book is titled A Possible Anthropology with a desire to convey that this is in some ways a more modest endeavor. It's an endeavor to try to make sense of the field by following anthropologists at work. And it's an endeavor to try to make sense of the field by following anthropologists at work in a moment when so much does in fact feel very fraught. And that has a lot to do with the subtitle of the book, Methods for Uneasy Times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting how you start basically almost like with a we start where interviewing the anthropologist Zoe Todd who uh, she was a PhD student in Aberdeen when I visited there for a, for a few months god knows when 2014 um, and uh, basically with talking about the disquiet I guess or the uneasiness in which uh, some people feel towards the discipline of anthropology and then, and then you come to a point where it's almost like okay should it, you know, should it be saved? You know, like, should it, should, should, should we do something with it? So I'm just wondering, like, when you first started thinking about your project, what drew you to it? Do we need to save something from this? Or was it more of a, um, um, actually, I really love anthropology. I need to convince people actually there's something, you know, worthwhile. Or was it like, you know, actually, we need to really seriously interrogate some of our problems and find a new way out. I'm trying to get to your motivation in terms of like how you feel almost emotionally, I guess, towards uh, the discipline of anthropology. I think it's really hard to be an anthropologist without being tortured by that fact, <laughs> without being tortured by the layers and layers of complexity, complicity, entanglement in the unsavory that being an anthropologist necessarily promises. This has to do with the colonial origins of the discipline, which is a lot of what has been on the minds of critics like Zoe Todd. Not only those, not only the originary coloniality of a field like anthropology, but also the ways in which that colonial heritage continues to shape relations of both power and knowledge in the field as it is practiced even now. So there is the colonial heritage that we inherit, that we live and work in the wake of as contemporary anthropologists. There is also the legacies of racism that we inherit in a field that Karen Brodkin and others have argued still remains in many ways white public space. And the question then of how those relations, both racial and colonial, continue to shape what can and can't be said by whom 
in the field even now, all of this remains a site of great complication and difficulty with a field like ours. At the same time, I will say uh, quite flat out that I love anthropology. I love being an anthropologist. I love being an ethnographer. It gives me ways of wrestling with the world and its difficulties as we have them now uh, that I think I would really miss had I not had methodological resources like ethnography in my toolkit. I really do believe very deeply in the conceit that through a certain kind of experiential encounter, through an experiential immersion, we can not only imagine, but also feel what it's like to be in the world in a fundamentally different way, but we can also convey that to other people, those who encounter our work, whether it's in the form of a written text or a film or even an audio conversation of the kind that we're having now, that good work and anthropology carries about it a certain kind of transformative charge or force. And insofar as it has that potential, it has about it a deeply ethical and political quality that I think we also have to acknowledge. And I think it's also worth working with. So it is very much a difficult kind of love, I think, uh, the love that an anthropologist might have for a field mm -hmm. like ours. But I think it's a necessary love. I think it's. Uh, I think. I think that there there are things that we can do, given the way that we think and work as anthropologists and as as ethnographers, that uh, few others trained otherwise can do as effectively. So we have to find a way of reconciling ourselves both mm. with the difficulty and with the promise. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, my favorite. Um, or maybe the, the the thing that resonated most strongly with me in your book was this idea of an anthropological disposition. And and now I don't work in an anthropology department and I'm involved in a few research projects where I'm the only anthropologist. And it's so much fun being the anthropologist there because you uh, because you you different you you know you start to see things in a different way. You start to make connections in a different way. You start to um, you start to categorize people around you. You start to see social structures. You start to like, you know, it fundamentally, I guess, changes the way your brain works to be an anthropologist. And in a way that's, I would say, quite an open way of, of thinking about things, you know, because constantly you're thinking about, I guess, yeah, the world in motion and how it all fits together and where it's going. So I'm wondering, like, um, could you maybe unpick this idea? And I think it's in mostly mostly talked about in chapter two of the anthropological disposition. Like, what is it? Like, well, how do how do you see the sort of the way anthropologists are, the way we are in the world? I think that word that you used, open, is really important. Mm -hmm. One thing I've been thinking a lot over the last few years is this idea of an open mind, what it means mm -hmm. to have an open mind, what it means to encounter the world, to encounter things that are foreign or unknown with an open mind. I think that is, in fact, a disposition. And more than that, it's a cultivable disposition. And that the practice of anthropology 
the practice of ethnography demands that we cultivate that disposition. That is to say, there is no way of being an effective anthropologist without being willing to submit oneself to the vicissitudes of circumstance, to the uncertainty of what we encounter, to the impossibility of things to remain as we thought they would be, the possibility of expecting that people will address the things that we want them to address. There is just so much uncertainty that we necessarily encounter when we do anthropology. And one thing that I try to show in this book is that doing anthropology well requires learning how to be positively disposed to that uncertainty, whether it's as a field worker or, in fact, as a teacher in a classroom, as a writer wrestling with all the different places that our evidence and learning take us, or even, in fact, as a reader, as we're caught up in the vagaries of what we read, in all of those different instances, what the field asks of us is, in fact, a disposition toward the unknown and a willingness to make that unknowing the foundation of a different kind of knowledge of the world, but also, in fact, a different way of being in the world, which to me is, in fact, ultimately an ethical disposition. Okay. I'm going to come back to this question of ethics in a minute because I, one of our guest contributors to the podcast has a question about ethics. But before I do that, I want to, pay you, I want to play a piece of music which might give you post-traumatic stress disorder. So I apologize if that is the case. Do you know what we're listening to? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are we listening to and why did I play it to you? Well, <laughs> that's a small fragment of uh, Wagner's Parsifal. I can't mm -hmm. tell you. I don't know enough to tell you what recording that is, uh, <laughs> what orchestra was responsible for that particular fragment, though I do uh, recognize the, the snatches of music that you played. And it's important to the story I tell in that second chapter, because as I seek in that chapter to make sense of these practices that I mentioned a second ago, reading, writing, teaching, and fieldwork, I come in and out of company with a series of anthropologists engaged in these different things. So I am wandering around with the anthropologist Natasha Myers as she is doing fieldwork in an urban forest in Toronto. I am spending a semester with the anthropologist and my colleague here at Johns Hopkins, Jane Geyer, as she's teaching a class on the anthropology of Africa. I am spending a few days in the company of the anthropologist Michael Jackson as he's working on a new piece of writing. And though I have never had the pleasure of meeting Claude Levi-Strauss in person, I did have the chance to visit his study, his a study at home in Paris, and have a series of conversations with his widow, Monique Levi-Strauss, through which I reconstructed an account of Levi-Strauss's practice, practices as a reader of Amerindian myths. And in that particular section of the chapter, 
to make sense of Levi-Strauss's practices as a reader of myths and ultimately as a writer of the mythologiques, I had to confront the relationship between music and thinking in Levi-Strauss's own imagination of his practice. The fact that music was an absolutely fundamental feature of his thinking, reading, and writing practice, and the curiosity of those passages here and then, here and there in his work, where he likens his own writing, or likens the effect of his own writing to the experience of music. And so in that section, again, as an ethnographer, trying to make sense of an experience from the inside out, to the extent possible, I thought that I wouldn't be able to grasp this assertion that Levi Strauss makes most explicitly in the overture to The Raw and the Cooked, the first of the mythologiques, without entwining my own reading of that text with music and knowing what I knew about Levi Strauss, that Wagner was a favorite composer of his, and more than that, that Levi Strauss had actually suggested at one point that one could turn to some of Wagner's reflections for the most concise definitions of myth itself, it struck me that it might make sense to try to lose myself in that particular opera the sound of it, the movement of it, the feeling of it as a way of trying to experience a text that I had already read before and felt I was already familiar with in a different way. And as you know, from having read the book, the writing grows out of that concatenation of, of text and music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's just one of the things that's also super interesting in the book is the methodological innovation, I guess, like when you were watching also Michael Jackson, as he was writing, you were sitting away from him seeing his, you know, writing. <laughs> it reminded me of an aborted writing process I had with my super PhD supervisor, who probably won't listen to this, so I can I can say it, we were, we were trying to write like uh, something together in Google Docs. And like, he was, as I was finishing a sentence, he was like changing my sentence before it got to the end. And I was like, and I called him on the phone and said, stop, you know, and it's like watching, watching people think as they write is like, wow, right? So it was amazing, actually, to be able to sit in the same room with someone who I actually revere as a writer, uh, as a mentor, uh, as someone who I've learned enormously from with regard to this thing that I also do, anthropology, to be able to sit with him as he writes and to try to make some sense of that process in that little cloistered space that we were sharing for a few days. It was most definitely a one-way feed. I didn't have uh, the kind of connection that would allow me to alter his words as he was writing them. We had basically created a kind of monitor output from his screen to mine so I could follow along with him as he was working. But this was precisely what was quite incredible to watch, to actually stop and pay attention to the movement 
of someone else's sentences as they grow, as they contract, as they begin in one place and then go somewhere else. To, to actually see the almost amoebic movement of these words on a page, it was fascinating. But it also did underscore one of the essential points that Michael was making in our conversations together and that I also draw as a larger lesson about the work of the anthropologist more generally, which is that one has to be prepared to let the material work on oneself. One has to be prepared to allow things to sort of work through oneself, that there is this sort of complicated interplay between an intentional agency and a more passive submission to circumstance and to material that one has to keep alive in order for anything creative, in fact, to happen. And I'd seen this already as a mode of proceeding in the work that I had done with filmmakers in South India for a previous book called Real World, which is a book that you and I have actually spoken about. We had a lovely conversation about it. And thank you again for the chance to talk to you about that book. Uh, it, it, but this was, this was actually quite an interesting lesson for me in writing this one, that there were all these interesting parallels that began to emerge between what I came to understand of a creative process like filmmaking and how I came to see the creative process of anthropology at work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when I'm thinking about that, you're sitting watching, you know, um, uh, an anthropologist with a, you know, permanent position, you know, very revered and known writing. You also then went to Levi Strauss and you had the opportunity to think about how he used to read, listening to music in his study that, you know, was completely closed and, you know, and he wasn't disturbed, et cetera, and so on. I was thinking a little bit, is this the experience of most anthropologists in the world today when it comes to their working environment? And uh, I was thinking about this precisely because I was reading uh, your book whilst I was on a bus. And this is what I could hear on the bus. So that's the uh, the ultras from a Hungarian football club called MTK, and uh, I was with them on the bus because I'm also I'm also a supporter of this football club, and we were going to watch a football game. And originally, that they were saying to me, "Oh, come, we're going to go away. We went to this town called Paks." Um, about a couple of hours drive, two and a half hours drive from Budapest. And uh, originally I said, no, I can't go. I've got to, uh, I've got to, got too much work on that. I was like, actually, this is the perfect chance actually to actually have some free time to actually read a book. <laughs> like, you know, we've, cause sometimes being in the office in a university is not a good time to read. Being at home when you have a five-year-old kid, as I do, is not a good time to read. So I was thinking like, so a lot of the stories that you tell in your book, we could maybe possibly say we're telling the story of anthropologists at work who are anthropologists who have a certain amount of privilege no one to say myself being unprivileged i feel perfectly you know whatever but like just relatively normal in the sense you know i've got to manage life work you know and sneak away times to find the time to do an anthropological practice like reading or writing in you know you know almost steal that time from within the busyness of the day so i'm wondering did you think about this when you were when you were writing the book that like who the the characters that you chose to work with what sort of story they would tell that's an important question to ask it's a it's a crucial question to ask and it is 
a very important thing for all of us in the field to be thinking about the highly precarious circumstances in which or into which most students and younger anthropologists land when they complete their studies in anthropology. There's so much uncertainty with regard to possible jobs, with regard to professional life, with regard to a career of some kind, of any kind to begin with, that younger anthropologists in particular face now. The problem is again compounded by hierarchies of race, class, and gender, and all the other ways in which invidious forms of social distinction once again privilege the experiences of some at the expense of others. And all of this, these are questions that a lot of people are thinking about in the field right now, and a lot of people are wrestling with, and I think they're absolutely essential. Michael Jackson is an interesting case in this mm-hmm. regard because even when I spoke with him, yes, it's true that he was at Harvard. On the other hand, he was there as he's been for a long time as a visiting professor, mm-hmm. as, as, as someone, in fact, without secure employment. And this is a circumstance that he's written about a fair amount, quite explicitly, and reflected on this, on the choices that he's made in his own life that have landed him in circumstances of greater existential precarity than would otherwise obtain if one's path had proceeded along a more conventional line through tenure-track employment, as it does for so many academic anthropologists here in the United States. So I think that's worth emphasizing, in his case at least, that though there are certain people, and this is true, I think, more widely as well, there are certain people that we may in fact come to revere and take quite seriously, may in fact have a lot of uh, credence as anthropologists. We can't necessarily infer from that prominence that all of them, all of those who have that credence share the same kind of institutional position. Mm-hmm. There, there are people who've made that happen despite, in fact, having very little job security. Having said that, I'll also say that one of the reasons why in the prior chapter of that book, when I wanted to write and think about early anthropology, when I wanted to think about, well, it's the philosophical problem of empiricism Mm -hmm. that I'm wrestling with in that first chapter. And the idea that the mode of empiricist inquiry in anthropology is in some ways from the get-go a more radical empiricism than we give it credit for, sort of what I'm trying to show in that first chapter. But I do that by thinking between two people positioned rather differently in the world. One, Branislav Malinovsky, of course, widely considered the kind of um, of the forefathers of, of the field and of the ethnographic method, uh, plum position at LSE for so many years, I juxtapose his thinking and writing with that of Zora Neale Hurston, who, on account of the racism endemic to American anthropology at that time, was never 
able to secure a proper position for herself in the field, let alone, in fact, a degree, because she couldn't actually get the support to do the PhD work that she wanted to do in anthropology, which is why she had to pursue a much more tenuous career as a writer. She, too, was dealing throughout her life with conditions of profound existential precarity to the extent that, as we, as we know, she died rather poor and the site of her grave was completely obscured until Alice Walker brought it to everyone's attention uh, some years ago. And there's been a renaissance. Uh, her books were all out of print when mm-hmm. she died. Uh, and of course, they're, they're, um, they're, they're crucial texts for us now. In fact, I've, I've been teaching Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston this, this semester in our introductory class here at Hopkins. Uh, in addition, in fact, to the work of Ella Deloria, the Native American anthropologist, another student of Franz Boas, who again, by virtue of her own personal circumstance, was someone who was never able uh, to, of course, to make a living as an anthropologist, could have spent many days and nights, in fact, living out of an automobile as she was pursuing field research for Boaz. Uh, the field is full of this kind of mm-hmm. history. I try to be honest about it, but, and I'll just say this one last thing, partly because in some ways this book was an effort of mine to try to learn again what is at stake in the field. I went to people whose work I knew well, whose work I respected greatly, who's, who, who I wanted to try to learn from in the manner of an apprentice. And so because I was, in a sense, apprenticing myself as someone who was already uh, you know, a professor in my own right, uh, that probably shaped the kinds of choices that, that, that I made. And I think you're absolutely right to say that a book like this would look very different if I had devoted more attention than I had to contemporary anthropologists working in conditions of of, uh, of, of greater precarity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned then about, uh, I guess, about the field and empiricism and experience and so on. But I'm not going to ask the question. Instead, I'm going to I'm going to bring in a guest. Hi, Anand Pandian. I'm Laura Conruther, and I teach anthropology at Bard College. I really enjoyed reading a possible anthropology alongside. Ian Cook and Penelope Papilius. And thank you, Ian, for suggesting that we submit our own questions to Anand during your interview. We annotated the book together through Dropbox and then had a fun Zoom-versation about the book as part of an experimental humanities reading group um, formed in the summer uh, that we were all part of. And our practice of reading collectively was very much in the spirit of collaboration that you describe in the book. So because we were reading this as part of an experimental humanities reading group, I was particularly taken by your discussion of experiment and experience and their intertwined history that both involve encounters with the unknown, particularly the unknown of a present moment. Rather than focus on experience as the object of anthropological study, as you suggest, um, what we do when we pursue anthropology is to put experience into motion as both means and ends of investigation, to work through experience of a field of inquiry and work on the experience of those we share that inquiry with. So two different thoughts or questions emerged for me from this particular passage. First, I wanted to hear you say more about how both experiment and experience 
um, are essential elements of the anthropological field, especially as you see it developing today within the critical speculative approach that you propose in your book, or even in the fieldwork that you did for the book. How does this resonate with or remain distinct from other disciplines' understanding of the field, such as humanitarian or human rights missions that describe themselves as going to the field. That's something I'm particularly interested in for my own research. Um, and secondly, do you see a particular ethics involved in working through both through experience of a field of inquiry and on the experience of those we share that inquiry with? And is that ethics changed at all in the possible anthropology that you propose in the book? These are lovely questions. And it'd be lovely to have Laura involved as part of the conversation so we could go a bit back and forth around uh, these matters. I, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's definitely something potentially imperializing about the very idea, the very conceit of working on the experience of others. And it, it's one way to come around to the reality of a fair amount of applied anthropology in the modern era, which has in fact served the interests of the American military and uh, problematic endeavors in, uh, in, in development, in social transformation, in which the tools of anthropology have in fact been enlisted to serve the self-interests of those agencies concerned with transforming the lives and circumstances of others with their own concerns in mind. So there's nothing I think that we can, there's nothing that we can uncritically affirm or naively affirm here as necessarily or intrinsically good to say that anthropology works on others or anthropology could be enlisted as a means of working on the lives of others <clears throat> in this manner or even to say as i do in the book that anthropology invests us in the notion of a humanity to come there's nothing here to, I would say, to celebrate in any straightforward sense, because a lot of what can happen with such conceits in mind can actually be quite uh, troubling and, uh, and, and highly problematic. And in fact, a lot of the critical work of many anthropologists in the 20th century has been to precisely try to counter some of those noxious purposes to which anthropological understanding can itself be put. Having said all of this, I don't mean to imply that we should somehow celebrate in a straightforward way the fact that anthropology can serve as a vehicle of social transformation. What I mean instead to say is that regardless of how we feel about that, anthropology will keep serving that purpose. 
there's something in the nature of anthropological inquiry, anthropological encounter, the ways in which our stories and images and texts get mobilized that will continue to have this force. My question is, can we do that more critically? Can we do it more creatively? Can we do it with a spirit in a spirit of pluralizing possible futures, of pluralizing ways of being in the world, rather than as a instrument by means of which to buttress and further instantiate dominant and highly toxic ways of being in the world. I think to do that, we have to begin by acknowledging the pragmatic place that anthropological modes of imagination and expression have in the world, in the, world the work that they're already doing in the world, at which point we can then ask the question, how else could that work be done? And once again, this has something to do with why I think of the task in this book as one of putting forward a possible anthropology, some other way of doing these things that might be less enmeshed in the problematic relations that so many of us are so perturbed by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, just, just one small observation, and uh, this is why actually I think podcasting and anthropology go so well together. One of my favorite things about making podcasts as opposed to reading or listening to podcasts, even though it's always than reading text sometimes, is that it's really nice to hear people think out loud as what you were doing then. And I think that's actually something about the openness that we try to bring to the discipline. You know, like I just I just think it's like, you know, we, we have to write something, we revise it a hundred times, we go out there, we put it out there, then somehow we have to defend it. Especially, you know, like and, and then but like when you have a conversation, it's like, you know, you think and you're thinking and it's almost like you put things out there tentatively and it's and it's a and I think it's a wonderful way of generating knowledge or thinking through ideas so and yeah. and that's lovely ian because it actually brings us back around to the first thing the first set of points that laura was making about experiment and experience mm -hmm. and i'm drawn to ways of thinking and working in anthropology that would give a little more space for what you're describing you're absolutely right that there's latitude for it in a spoken conversation, what would it mean to insinuate a little more of that latitude into the space of a text? What authorial voice would one have to assume? What vulnerability would one have to model? Uh, what expansiveness of form and style would one have to countenance in order for some of that openness to also find its way into the body of the text? I think that once again, there's no straightforward answer. There's no straightforward way of saying, here's how experience and experiment come together in a field like anthropology. Everything turns on the kind of space that's created, the mode of expression that's pursued. Exactly. And maybe one of the things relating to that is actually the way we work as individuals and together and that's actually Laura's second question because obviously I've listened to these questions before but let's listen to uh, Laura's second question which I think really follows on very well from that. My second question relates to your interesting point that we might think about the impact of anthropological work by looking at the social life of ideas that the field puts into motion. This is especially true, as you note, because more than 50% of graduate students say that they are considering careers in advocacy, social justice, or human rights. 
And it got me thinking about all the anthropologists who may not get full-time tenure-track jobs in academia, but who still fundamentally see their work and their way of thinking as anthropological. Um, I think that the journal that you were currently recording this interview for was started by a group of such anthropologists. So I wonder if pursuing collectivities like this might add something to our understanding of where the social life of ideas are put into motion. Um, and I guess I'm just interested in if you are thinking of a second project, if you are thinking of a second project, might these collectivities be something that you would look into? This is, again, such a terrific and essential question. The third chapter of the book, as, as you know, is, is about precisely this idea that we might best understand what anthropology might do in the world by paying attention to the life of anthropological ideas in fields beyond the discipline proper. So I look at the exercise of a certain kind of anthropological imagination among indigenous activists at a global conservation conference in the work of contemporary artists who are working with plastic detritus, but doing so by imagining themselves as archaeologists from a distant future, trying to make sense of our civilization from that temporal distance. In the writings of Ursula K. Le Guin, the daughter of two important American anthropologists, Alfred Kroeber and Theodora Kroeber, whose science fiction was deeply inflected by the by her childhood and, and in fact by her her, her life uh, in the company of anthropologists and the native people that her parents worked closely with and uh, the imprint of of that kind of experience on on her science fiction these are the kinds of materials with which I try to make the case that in some ways we might get a better understanding of what anthropology can do in the world by paying attention to these forms of circulation rather than by asking anthropologists what they think about these matters, or at least anthropologists uh, within the academy, as I am. And Laura is absolutely right to observe that most people with degrees in anthropology, at least in the United States, in the UK, from what I understand, from what I read for this book, wind up with careers outside the academy and it is also the case that given present-day circumstances with regard to the academic job market, this will be even more so as time goes on. And it's absolutely essential that we find ways of telling stories about making sense of what the field is about in a manner that accommodates these other forms of work that doesn't simply look to academic anthropology for uh, the normative picture of what it is that anthropology is and what it is that anthropologists do, but instead begins with the range of practical commitments and relationships that people have in the world, far beyond the cloisters of the academy. It's something that 
I think all of us who are in the academy have to take much more seriously when I said what I'd said slightly earlier about some of the uses to which applied anthropology had been put. I didn't by any means mean to criticize applied anthropology as such. It's just that there's a whole range of applications. There's a whole range of ways that we find uh, anthropological knowledge and imagination made use of in the world. And I think we can spend a lot more time thinking about that. One way that I'm trying to do it more concretely here in Baltimore and at the university where I work, Johns Hopkins University, is by is through a series of uh, little experiments that myself and colleagues, not only within my department, but in the School of Engineering at our campus, other departments and other organizations here in the city have begun around the theme of ecological design and thinking through, in fact, practical forms of research and intervention here in the city, bringing together teams of researchers, designers, and community activists, contributing to those efforts, whatever skills and uh, forms of training that we have from our own disciplines, doing so uh, with a much more pragmatic uh, set of interests uh, about the environments of, of the city here that we live in. That's a certain kind of way in which I've taken those lessons to heart. But I think we all have a great deal to learn from younger folks who are having to pursue these kinds of experience, experiments out of necessity. And we need to do what we can to make sure that there's space for people to make a living trying out these things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's super interesting in terms of thinking about expanding the field of what we consider anthropology. And, uh, and and it's not even like it's out. Sometimes it's out of necessity. Sometimes it's just simply people, they get trained in anthropology and they enjoy it, but they just don't want an academic career because they just find much more, <laughs> sad to say, sometimes intellectual freedom outside of a university setting um, because of all the things that we could talk about in terms of, you know, managerialism or metrics and H index numbers and all this sort of bullshit that somehow seems to, seems to, seems to make up part of academic life. But I'm also wondering about what about expanding um anthropology not just in terms of thinking about um yeah people who go to work uh, and use their anthropological knowledge and inclination and disposition in different areas but also in different parts of the world and this maybe brings me on to our second guest questioner um who i think you've met or maybe you maybe she told me that you zoom crashed a greek party once that she was hosting i don't know <laughs> you could put it that way <laughs> this was during the distribute conference that um, that the uh, Society for Culture Anthropology and the Society for Visual Anthropology organized together this uh, past uh, spring, and uh, there were nodes in different parts of the world. It was all virtual on account of the pandemic and so on. Um, but the, the Greek node uh, did, in fact, throw an amazing party and invited us, all of us, in the conference. So, <laughs> I, it, yeah, it was, it was less of a Zoom bomb than than that um than that idea of crashing might imply um but but certainly yeah <laughs> anyway let's listen to penelope hi anandinian this is penelope papelius an anthropology professor at the university of thessaly in greece i really enjoyed reading a possible anthropology and thank ian for giving me a chance to share some of my thoughts about the book today Given that I have just been invited to be an editor of the World Anthropology section of the journal American Anthropologist, I wanted to ask you, Anand, the following somewhat provocative question. 
In a possible anthropology, you do an ethnography of anthropologists. Your book reminded me of Bernard Cohen's volume of essays, An Anthropologist Among the Historians. Here, though, we have an anthropologist among the anthropologists. In the cases in which you write about the work of living anthropologists, you did not just analyze their texts, you did fieldwork in their studies, you interviewed them. But this fieldwork was mostly focused on prominent anthropologists based in the U.S., not on anthropologists in other places in the world, like in South India, for instance, where you did your own fieldwork. Trying to imagine doing part of your project here in Greece and acknowledging, of course, the financial costs, the obvious linguistic obstacles, I actually think it would be pretty fascinating. So here's my question. Do you think reflecting on anthropological discourse as it has developed in other parts of the world could be a complement to your project in a possible anthropology and be a useful move towards provincializing American anthropology? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I would, I would love to see that happen more. I recognize that the book is squarely situated within the intellectual universe of North American anthropology. In some ways, it's my effort to wrestle with North American anthropology in particular and to find a path through it that I find palatable. It took me into the company of folks whose work comes out of other anthropological traditions, the French tradition that Lévi-Strauss was one of the most notable exponents of, the Antipodian anthropology of Michael Jackson. But these are still more prominent and influential folks of European ancestry. And I, I think Penelope is absolutely correct to ask the question, what would or could a project like this look like if it were anchored in other regional formations and traditions? I try to take seriously in the book the necessity of decolonizing anthropology. I think that that is an absolutely crucial orientation that would have to inform any critical practice with which we engage the past, present, and future of the field. That, to fully realize that decolonizing ambition, I think we would need to do many different kinds of things. We would need to pay attention to anthropological traditions as they arise in different parts of the world, the different circumstances in which people come to do anthropology, to imagine themselves as anthropologists or ethnographers, to wrestle with the circumstances of their own societies or the societies of others um, with that methodological toolkit. We would also, I think, need to think about some of the other basic things that we take for granted as embodiments of a proper anthropology writing in a certain kind of scholarly voice, for example, capitulating to the orthodoxy of the written text. There are all kinds of canonical structures and canonizing 
temptations, I think, that we fall prey to when we develop any picture of what the field is, what it could or should be. And certainly, I think, with a book like this, had my life circumstances been slightly different, had I not been writing it with two very young children, for example, uh, in years when I actually didn't have any research leave and couldn't get very far, if my life had been different in the years in which I'd worked on this book, I think the stories that I told in the book would most likely have been very different. There may have been more space, for example, to engage with some of the the work of an anthropological character that one encounters in South India um, and, and that I've written about in other places, uh, but, but there might have been more room for that, or even, as Penelope suggests, other regional anthropological traditions. But, I would, but having said all that, I don't know that any story ends with any particular book, and I would love to see uh, this book be part of a larger conversation of that kind and a larger set of inv- investigations that aim precisely at doing what Penelope suggests, which is confounding even further our picture of the field and opening up, therefore, what else it could be. Hi, Anand. It's Penelope again. I love the definition that you give of ethnography as a, quote, practice of critical observation and imagination, an endeavor to trace outlines of a possible world within the seams of this one. I will definitely use it in my classes. In conjoining critical observation and imagination, in putting them on the same level, you seem to be underlining a shift away from an anthropology primarily focused on the past and on empiricism, on what happened, toward one that still documents, but documents a possible future. In your book, of course, this is the reason that you write extensively about magic and fiction as genealogies, even traditions in anthropology. This emphasis on imagination is also key to your vision of an affirmative anthropology that goes beyond condemning, judging, and domestifying the power-laden, toxic present to describing visions of a more equitable, emancipated future. So my question is, do you think that we can speak of a more general turn in anthropology at this moment in time to the speculative? And why do you think that this is happening? And the second question, um, in a strange way, does this speculative turn, if you accept that framing, make anthropology simultaneously less quote-unquote scientific but more useful to society? These are such wonderful questions, and I really wish that I'd been part of uh, this <laughs> this discussion group that you all had. Uh, it'd be so nice to hash these things out together, but thank you for sharing them. I, I think that, as with any term, whether it's anthropology or experience or experiment, this term speculation means many different things or could mean many different things in different contexts. The book was conceived and written near the height of what came to great prominence and then began to subside and that we knew as the ontological turn which is a certain way of bringing currents of speculative philosophy to bear on comparative inquiry in anthropology. And so that particular shadow of speculative inquiry is 
definitely one that I would say passes over the book and gives speculation a certain kind of charge or visage. Side by side with that, of course, there are other registers of the speculative that have to do with art, with cinema, with fiction, other ways of conceiving and exercising a speculative imagination that are very much grounded in the affectivity and transformative charge of creative works, whether they come in the form of artworks or imagistic texts, or in fact, in, as a stream of images and sounds. And having worked a bit on cinema, having thought myself and having uh, tried with conferences like uh, Displacements, the biennial that I helped organize for the Society for Culture Anthropology and the Society for Visual Anthropology in 2018, that rise of a more multimodal anthropology, which is an opening into a different way of engaging in speculative practice, has also been on my mind and is also part of the texture of this book. So this very idea of speculation, I think, pulls in different directions. It pulls in a more literary and creative and artistic direction. It also pulls in a philosophical uh, direction. And even to put, things, put these things in that way isn't to somehow imply that this is an either or. Because of course, one of the arguments that I seek to make in characterizing Zora Neale Hurston as a radical empiricist is that there is in fact a great deal of philosophical verve in her literary work. So I don't by any means mean to kind of oppose these registers, but they are different. They pull in different ways and they ask different things of us uh, as readers and writers. And I think that there does seem to be a lot of room for this now in anthropology. There seems to be a great deal of interest in world building, in alternative forms of future making. When I was in graduate school, that is to say, when I kind of got my chops as an anthropologist, we were thinking a lot about anthropology and colonialism. We were thinking a lot about the colonial origins of anthropology as a field of inquiry and practice. And this has a great deal to do with what I wrote about in my first book as well, uh, Crooked Stocks, which was published a few years ago. Um, there does seem to be a lot more of an interest now in futures rather than in pasts. Can I put it so bluntly? I'm not sure, but certainly in alternative forms of future possibility. Of course, it has a great deal to do with the sense of ruination and abjection that so many of us feel in the present, the sense of being stranded, uh, 
in the rubble of different forms of uh, utopian aspiration that have preceded us and that seem to have come to a crashing halt in one way or another, overshadowing it all, uh, the specter of apocalypse, whether it's a climate apocalypse or uh, an infectious disease apocalypse or a, a kind of uh, apocalyptic surge of xenophobic populist nationalism or an apocalyptic surge if your political orientations are are, are, are otherwise um, th the question of all of the dispossessed in the world and who ought to be taking care of them, uh, which has so much to do with American politics now, the, the failure to t assume responsibility for others than, than, than one's own kind. Um, there, there's so much trouble that is afoot in the worlds that we engage as anthropologists. And I imagine this has a great deal to do with these interests that we have. And I actually do think that there's a lot that we can do in the midst of these questions, because when we document as anthropologists other ways of being in the world, other ways of living in the world, other ways of relating to one another, we don't simply archive what it is that people are doing now. We do so necessarily with the idea that there may be some viability to those other ways of being in the world. There's no way of entering into a text that's written deliberately in an ethnographic present without countenancing the possibility that that present elsewhere could also be my present. That's the invitation that the text makes. And in making an invitation like that, the text necessarily opens, text I'm saying here, but it could be a non-textual form of work, the work necessarily opens that speculative horizon. What if this life were my own? What if that way of being in the world was my own? Where could this go? What would we be? I think all of those questions have long been there in the history of the field, but they've certainly gained an added charge and momentum now. And I think it's really up to us to figure out creative ways of engaging with those circumstances, uh, with those, um, those challenges and dilemmas, and trying to make them focal points in the, the actual work that we do. That's great. I have one final question, if I may. Very small question. It's, um, can the world change with the assumption of another point of view? It's always changing with every assumption of another point of view. That, to me, was, uh, that to me is, a, is a basic lesson of process philosophy. It, it's also a basic lesson of everything I've absorbed over many years as a field worker in South India and as someone who has tried to do justice to the literary and creative imaginations of the people that I've encountered and worked with. And that, um, that commitment is absolutely central to everything I do as an ethnographer. 
Agreed. And that's a wonderful point uh, to leave it on. Thank you so much, Nand. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope it was also fruitful for yourself as well in thinking about future things. Uh, we've been talking about a possible anthropology, Methods for Uneasy Times, and it's published by Duke in 2019, if I'm correct. And it has an amazing front cover, which uh, hopefully we'll put on the website, which you should check out as well. Everyone Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks as well to Laura and Penelope, wherever you are for these wonderful questions and provocations. You've been listening to a podcast from Allegra. If this has been your cup of tea, then check out allegralaboratory.net for more anthropology and anthropology-related stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.